This is God's word. But God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark, and God made a wind blow over the earth, and the waters subsided. The fountains of the deep and the windows of the heavens were closed. The rain from the heavens was restrained. And the waters receded from the earth continually. At the end of 150 days, the waters had abated. And in the seventh month, on the 17th day of the month, the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat. And the waters continued to abate until the 10th month. In the 10th month, on the first day of the month, the tops of the mountains were seen. At the end of 40 days, Noah opened the window of the ark that he had made and sent forth a raven. It went to and fro until the waters were dried up from the earth. Then he sent forth a dove from him to see if the waters had subsided from the face of the ground. But the dove found no place to set her foot, and she returned to him to the ark. For the waters were still in the face of the whole earth. So he put out his hand and took her and brought her into the ark with him. He waited another seven days, and again he sent forth the dove out of the ark. And the dove came back to him in the evening, and behold, in her mouth was a freshly plucked olive leaf. So Noah knew that the waters had subsided from the earth. Then he waited another seven days and sent forth the dove, and she did not return to him anymore. In the 601st year, in the first month, the first day of the month, the waters were dried from off the earth, and Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked, and behold, the face of the ground was dry. In the second month, in the 27th day of the month, the earth had dried out. Then God said to Noah, Go out from the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives with you. Bring out with you every living thing that is with you of all flesh, birds and animals, and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, that they may swarm on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. So Noah went out and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him. Every beast, every creeping thing, every bird, everything that moves on the earth went out by families from the ark. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man. For the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night, shall not cease. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Amen. Please be seated. I know that last year... Uh, last fall, when we concluded in December our, our study through the first eight chapters of Genesis, we looked at chapter 8. And you might say, okay, Dennis, well, you told us what was in chapter 8. Why do you come back to chapter 8? Well, one of the reasons why we come back to chapter 8, and one of the reasons why we're taking some time to not just say, okay, we've got Moses, let's move on, is Moses becomes a paradigm for the rest of Scripture. He really is. It's really amazing if you really start to read through your Bible in a consistent way, how many places Noah pops up. I mean, we all think about Abraham and Moses. We tend to think, yeah, Noah and the ark. It makes cute little nursery decorations. You know, and everybody has them. But there's something profound about the person of Noah, according to the scriptures. There's something significant that happens here. And we need to then take time to look at this. First of all, Noah forces us to look back towards creation. There's a significant reality, especially in chapter 8, that we begin to see that makes us look back. The language seems so similar. All this preparation of the world is made, and then Noah is introduced to it and told to go out and be fruitful and multiply along with all 
the creeping things and the creatures and the birds. The, I mean, this, this whole language we see from Genesis chapter 1. This, this idea of God preparing a place and placing the man in that garden and all these creatures being created to go out and fill the earth. We see this same type of language going on. So we think back. But as we look to the future of what's coming after Noah, even to our present day, what we need to understand is, is that, and I'll read actually a portion of this later on um, from Isaiah 54, we see there that God actually uses Noah as the great archetype of what happens when God brings back a people that he seems to have utterly destroyed, yet he kept a remnant. I will not do this ever to you again. I will remember you just like in the days of Noah, Isaiah says, as he speaks from the Lord. Jesus himself tells us that we need to understand the days of Noah because it's going to be just like those days when the return of Christ draws nigh. It is also the understanding that as Noah comes out of the ark, he doesn't enter into the same old world. This is a world that has been cleansed and renewed in the same way that we're told that the earth in Romans 8 groans and longs for renewal. And that one day, someday, there will be a renewed earth, an earth that has been cleansed of all wickedness and sin. And that God's people will ultimately enter into that new world. And so we see here that you can't read these chapters and not be profoundly affected by the person of Noah, seeing how God is showing through Noah the great truths of what he is up to throughout history. So I want us to consider that. I want us to think about that. And we could talk more um, about Peter as well, who speaks of Noah. There's just, it's all throughout Scripture. It's important that we understand these things. There's three points I want to look at today, which are different from the ones we looked at before. It just goes to show that we could spend months in chapter 8 and never run out of sermon material. But this morning we're going to look at the providence, the Lord's providence, the Lord's provision, and the Lord's mercy. The first thing I want us to consider then throughout this whole chapter is the Lord's providence. The Westminster Shorter Catechism says this, what are God's works of providence? God's works of providence are his most holy, wise, and powerful preserving and governing all his creatures and all their actions. As you begin to think about what's happening throughout this chapter, what we see is a most wise, a most holy, a most good and gracious God at work on behalf of his creation. Because what we see as we read through this passage is that where in chapter 7 what we saw was that the floodwaters had risen up and this great chaotic flood was wiping out everything we now begin to see that that flood is under the control, under the providence of God, and its water is moving back to its place of rest. It's moving back to its place where it's supposed to be constrained. Now, the interesting thing throughout this chapter is this. Noah doesn't know what God is doing. And that's the interesting thing about providence. God is often doing things that you have no idea what He's up to. God is doing all these things that the Catechism rightly tells us He's up to 
while we're going about our daily lives. I mean, think about it. Noah got up. He and his sons probably got their shovels, cleaned out some stalls of elephants and giraffes and whatever other creatures were on that ark, did all those things, prepared food, went about their day-to-day -day activities just like any other day. And yet what we get as we're looking at the scriptures is there's major activity going on. The waters are receding. The mountaintops, which were covered, now begin to be seen. The ark now comes to rest, and still Moses continues to go on about his business. You see, there's something about the reality of providence that's going on that we, as people who believe and say we believe in this God, have to come to terms with. Because I want to contend with you this morning. Providence is something that people love to talk about. It is something very difficult to live underneath for most people. Because you see... If you really believe in the doctrine of providence, if you really believe that's true, you have to say that all the things that are happening in our world are under God's administration. All the things. And you have to come to understand that somehow God understands how all these different things are at work, working towards a right end, even when you don't understand how that could possibly be. And much of the frustration that we experience in this life is directly because at the end of the day, we are very frustrated with how God is working out His providence. Why did I get this teacher? Why does this kid have to be in my class? Why, do I, why did I get these parents? Why did I have to get this job? Why couldn't I have this gifts? Why didn't I get these opportunities? Why didn't I have parents that stayed together? I've even heard some people say, I don't know why my parents just didn't divorce. It would have been a whole lot easier on everybody. Not that I would condone that, but, you know, we, all, we always have these issues with why, why, why. And what I want to say to you this morning is, is that don't be so pious that you go, I never think that way. That's absurd. Everybody thinks this way. The question is, how do we begin to come to terms with it? How do we begin to be people who, as we go through life, because see, my fear is that sometimes in an effort to be pious, to say, I just live under the providence of God, what we really mean is, I'm just indifferent to what God is doing. I just, it's like, whatever. Que sera, sera, whatever will be, will be. That is not biblical Christianity. That is living under impersonal fate. We don't have impersonal fate for a God. We're not singing that Christmas carol, If the Fates Allow. We know there is a personal triune God that is at work all around this globe, throughout this universe, orchestrating and organizing things in such a way that people remain alive. I mean, have you ever begun to think about this? Do you realize we tend to think about, I had a wreck about a month ago, and, you know, wrecks are just a pain in the neck. You've got to talk to insurance companies. You got, I mean, literally a pain in the neck, too. Um, <laughs> they, but they just are. You've got to go out and get another car because your car is total. You've got to go out and do this, and you're just, it's just a pain. But, but do, you ever, do we ever stop to realize how many wrecks we don't have? How many diseases we're not subject to? How much resources we really do have available to us? 
See, somehow, as we really start to think about God's providence, as we look at what's happening with Noah, look at all the provisions that God has made, and that's going to be my next point, but look at all the things Noah has. Noah has all the animals in that ark to go out and create a new world, to populate the world, so that it will be an inhabitable place. That's all because God is watching over and orchestrating this world in a way that carries out his divine desires and designs and blesses people. We see it all the way through. All the way through to the times and seasons. God's providence is at work. And we struggle with that. We sometimes get frustrated with that. Here's one of the things that God is working in his providence and why I say we need to be honest with ourselves that we, we struggle with it from time to time. It's because God is growing in us patience. Do you see how we see God slowly but surely growing patience in Noah? This happened. Then he opened up this, and he sends out birds. He does all these things which make great logical sense. I mean, if you can't get out of the ark, and you can't really see all that's going on, what do you do? You send out someone that's got eyes. And so he begins to do this reconnaissance work, but you notice that Noah doesn't leave the ark till God tells him to. Even after he's popped the hatch, so to speak, and can look out and see, he still waits for the Lord. Patience, patience, patience. Now, are we to believe that Noah, every single moment of every single hour that he spent in this ark, was just going, I just, I'm just so thankful to be here, and, and I'm just so grateful that I continue to get to smell the warm, fresh stench of animal poop. Day after day after day. Because that's, I mean, think about it. You're in a box with a bunch of animals and a bunch of people storing food and all their stuff that comes when you eat food. That's not exactly the ideal location to be for health, wealth, and glamorous living. And yet here's Noah learning patience learning trust, learning to believe that whatever's happening outside the box is good, is right, is a benefit and a blessing to what God is delighting to do with His people. Those are hard lessons that take a lifetime to learn. You realize Noah was, was 600 years old as these events are taking place. I mean, he's, he's hundreds of years old. He's not a young man. These are things that take time, longevity. God is at work behind the scenes, growing in his people the character qualities that he delights to be in them. So what I want us to begin to think about is how we begin to help one another think about it so that what we don't do is we don't have this, well, you just need to trust the Lord. But we do have an attitude that says, don't you see, we need to trust the Lord. We need to be encouraged because there are times each one of us is going to feel, I just don't understand what God is up to. I don't understand why these things are happening this way. Because God is determined to make His people the kind of people they were made to be. That's what He's up to. That's what's happening here. We also have some promises, don't we? Isaiah tells us that those who wait upon the Lord, those who have patience will mount up with wings like eagles. 
They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not faint. The reality is, is that God is growing in human beings the very thing necessary for them to be the kind of people they need to be. Those who would wait. Those who would trust the Lord. Those who would believe in His promises. We also find that this is the very character quality that God displays in Anna, when it says that she was waiting for the consolation of Israel, and when Jesus enters the temple, so was Simeon. They both were waiting, waiting, waiting. Patience. They're old. But God keeps His promise to Simeon, doesn't He? He sees the hope, the consolation of Israel in His hands before He dies. Anna, this old woman who had given her life for years in the service of the Lord, waiting, 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 sees the Messiah, the hope that all of history has been hinging on. And so we see that God is teaching in all His people this willingness to wait, this willingness to grow. The means of growth in our Christian life, then, is seeing how truly undeserving of God's care I am, and then seeing how loving, how wise, how determined to do us good He truly is. See, that's the principle that we need to learn from providence throughout the Scripture, that God is determined to do His people good. He really is there. He has not abandoned us, and He really is determined to do us good, despite the various circumstances that we may see as difficult or frustrating. The second thing that I want us to look at is the Lord's provision. God provided throughout this whole situation for Noah, didn't he? Underneath his providence, we see these direct provisions. Who came up with this idea to build this box in the middle of, of this area where it had never rained? It was God. Who provided the know-how to put these things together to build this massive construction? That would be God. We just begin to go down through this, and what we continue to see is, who had mercy on Noah? God. Continuously down through this, we see God providing His insight, His understanding, His wisdom. He provides the cleansing of the world. He provides safety for Noah. He cares for them. He keeps these animals alive. He has Noah wisely bring a certain amount of animals. Have you ever asked yourself this question, why so many of the clean animals? Two reasons. That's what Noah was supposed to eat and live on. Secondly, that's what he was to be able to sacrifice once he got off the boat, which we see he does. See, God is showing his provision throughout this, his care for him. Even so much that he didn't just save Noah by himself. He saved Noah with his family. Do you realize what a comfort? Can you imagine what a great hardship it would have been for Noah to know that he had no one? He alone was left? What a great hardship that would be. But God in his kindness and mercy not only gives him his wife, but his children and their spouses to be a comfort to him and to be a help to him and to be an aid to him. Now we know part of what's going on here is that Noah is that covenant head. He is the head of this family. And because of his favor before the Lord, his children, his wife, received the benefits. In the same way that Adam would have blessed all of us had he not rebelled against God with his wife. But it also points us to the future, doesn't it? That Christ came. And we're told throughout the New Testament that because of what Christ has done, his family benefits. 
Not because of what they did or didn't do, but because of what he did. And not just what he did as, as a man, but what he did as God. Because we see throughout this provision, we see God. We also see that God provides Noah with a raven and a dove. Now, that might seem like a small thing, but realize this. Noah is probably, when he, it says he opened a window, the window was probably a flat thing on top of the ark, which is why he couldn't see out. So he had to send birds out through it. So he's provided with a raven. He figures, you know, if the raven doesn't come back, eventually that bird is going to have to find a place to rest. But the dove that he sends out, he knows that that dove will have to keep coming back as long as there's nothing out there. So he's looking for, he's, he's got that dove on a reconnaissance mission. The first time it comes, it comes back because it can't find any place to land. The second time it comes back with an olive branch. Third time it doesn't come back. And Noah now knows that God has kept his word. That seems like a small thing, but, but who provided Noah with the dove? God. God did. God's provision is profound for his people. The next thing I want us to see as we consider this whole idea of provision is we go down to verse 20. Look what it says, And Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. The normal process of human beings when they have experienced something of profound saving activity, whatever it is, whether it's a doctor saved you from brain cancer, whatever it is, human beings' tendency is to say, Thank you. It's the, I can't do enough for you. So how much more profound is it that when Noah gets off this boat, he, he knows precisely who has saved him. He knows precisely what has happened to everyone else. And he gets off this boat, and the first thing he wants to do is say, God, I just want to praise you. I just want to sacrifice you. I just, there's not anything I can't do for you. And notice what God does. He provides the means for Noah to do that very thing provides the means. See, again, we tend to take these things for granted. We're, we're in a building right now with instruments and all types of things. We have AC. It may not work as great as we'd like it to, but at least it works some. It at least cuts off some of the edge of this almost oppressive heat we experience in this desert. Why? Because God is merciful in providing for us. I think nobody walked this morning, so whether you own a vehicle or whether you caught a ride with somebody else who God's provided a vehicle, we were brought here. We gathered. We have actual vocal cords to praise the Lord. We have eyes to see, ears to hear. God is providing for us in profound ways, and we tend not to think very highly of these things. We tend to take these things for granted until they're taken away. There are members in our congregation that are losing their eyesight. There are members of our congregation who have faced struggling health concerns. I think about George. I mean, George and Lucette, what a testimony to, to just endurance and perseverance and patience before the Lord. Lucette gets sick, George is okay. George gets sick, Lucette's okay. I mean, it's this teeter-totter of their existence, and George's heart, bless his heart, has just continued to be a struggle. But do we realize that God's provided George to be able to go home? God did that. Yes, he allowed surgeons to know how to do the things they did, but nevertheless, we know it's God. And that's why George can say, praise the Lord. See, we need to be people who really do understand as we look at what's happening in this 
Bible that God has provided everything for us, everything necessary for life and godliness is provided for us by God. We see salvation not merely, not merely as a way away from something, but what this text is also showing us is that salvation is not just escaping something, it's also bringing us to something. And what we see that God has provided is not just, an, uh, not just a way out of the old world, but a way into the new world. And that's what we see God provides here. And in fact, the interesting thing that we often see uh, throughout the scriptures is that God is constantly pointing us forward to something better. There's going to be something better. Keep pressing forward. Keep striving. Keep moving forward. Even if you don't see it, know that, that the posterity, that I am going to fulfill all my promises. And what we see in this language of new creation is seen in 2 Corinthians 5.17. Most of us read that in most of our translations, which it's not incorrect that they say we are a new creature in Christ. For those who are in Christ Jesus, behold, they are a new creature. But the real reality is, is that language in the Greek actually doesn't say new creature. That what it says there is, everyone who is in Christ, behold, new creation. And why does that become important? Because what we see that happens with Noah is not merely that he's a new man, that he's a man who has seen and experienced the providence of God firsthand, that he has seen and experienced the provision of God firsthand, but that what he walks into is a new creation. He walks into a cleansed place. And that's profound and amazing. And see, what Paul's saying to us is if, if we're in Christ, we don't just walk into same old, same old. No, absolutely not. You can't look at the world the same way. You have to be people who start to say, God is at work. He really is. God is really good. God really loves me. God really does forgive me. God really is enabling me to move forward in a new creative reality, not just as a new creature, but in a new creative reality. That means that while we should not confuse perfection of heaven, we do have to understand that in a real sense, heaven is in us and all around us if we're in Christ. Which means we have the power to start rolling back the effects of sin. We can't stop sin. Only God ultimately can do that, but we can roll back its effects in every capacity, comforting those who are suffering and hurting, being providers to those people, showing that we really do care and we really have experienced a transformative work in our lives. The third thing I want us to look at then is the Lord's mercy. The Lord's provision of an ark of everything was an act of his divine mercy. God didn't have to do this. Let us be clear. What happens in, in chapter 6 is profound. What happens in chapter 6 of Genesis is amazing. We, we tend to look, it says first, that er, the intent of every man's heart was only evil continually. And then it tells us, but God showed favor on Noah. That word favor could also be translated grace. God showed grace to Noah. Because Noah was the superstar Christian of his day? Well, maybe, but we have no record of that. We know that in knowing God, that Moses, I mean, that Noah proved himself to be a righteous man. 
because he listened to God, because he, uh, he heeded God's revelation. But those of us who read the Bible enough know that even that, even having a heart that's willing to listen, is an act of God's mercy. There's nothing special about us that makes us want to listen to God and other people not listen to God except for God. And so we see profound things happening that God delights to show mercy to Noah because He delights to show mercy. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. And so God shows mercy to Noah. And all the way through these whole events, we see God's mercy, but we see them profoundly coming here at the end of the chapter when it says, Then Noah built an altar, as we just read, and look at verse 21. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man. For the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. Why? Why? I mean, you read that and you almost ought to be depressed. So basically what you're saying, God, is even after you've done all this and now Noah comes out of the ark and here he is and he's this righteous man before you and a preacher of righteousness as the New Testament calls him and all these things. And so we expect, all right, a brand new start. And in some ways, yes, it was. But you see those words that even from his youth, man's intentions are evil. That means that everybody who got off the ark fits that qualification. And do you see how merciful God is that he says to Noah, I am not going to destroy all of humanity, even though they deserve it. Even though, they're all, even though you all are a bunch of little Hitlers, I'm not going to wipe you all out. That is profound mercy, men and women. We have no idea how really wicked we are and how truly, profoundly merciful God is. But do you see how this text really exposes the human heart? It really begins to get at what we're really like. It basically says it's not about bad morals. See, it doesn't say that, well, all men have bad morals. They just need some moral training. It doesn't say to us that the reality is, is that somehow that there is, his issue is the environment he's in. Because see, Noah and them get off in a very great environment. Adam and Eve even had a better environment. No sin. And yet, they sinned. See, what this text is telling us is, is that everything we do is deserving of God's judgment. That He could and would rightly be able to wipe this planet clean. And yet He declares these great words, these great merciful words, I will not destroy all human beings. I will not eradicate all the creatures off this planet. I will not do it. Because I delight to show mercy. Because God here, even now, we don't have to wait to get to Exodus where God reveals to, to Moses that He is patient and long-suffering. We see it right here. God is long-suffering. God is patient. God is full of loving kindness and tenderness 
to people who don't deserve it. He continues to show His mercy and grace. And we not only see His mercy in the fact that He accepts this offering, which He provides, but He also lets Noah know that He's going to provide regularity of life. Do you realize how profound that is? Do you realize how often we take that mercy for granted? When you got up this morning, you knew it's supposed to be a September day in Tucson. And what's a September day in Tucson like? Hot, with a lot of sunshine. So none of you were scrambling around this morning thinking, I'm probably going to need an umbrella. Do you know why that is? Because of what God promises here, regular seasons, morning and evening, winter. I mean, you know tonight it's going to get dark. Do you realize that that's a promise from God? In other words, what's being said in this text is, is that God could have allowed the universe to have gone chaotic, to have gone the way it should go because of sin, because human beings are evil in their intents. God could have let the universe just go willy-nilly. But instead he says, I will not allow sin to utterly destroy people or this planet. I will organize it and control it and maintain a general sense of the way things are going to go so that you and I can experience a certain normalcy of life. We get up in the mornings, we eat, we drink, we go to our various occupations or to school or to whatever it is we have that day to do because there's a regularity. There's a normalcy of life that we can in some measure depend on because of God's mercy. Now, it's not just for that reason that God gives it. It's also a testimony. This mercy is a testimony to God's goodness. It's a testimony to who He is in His faithfulness and His trustworthiness. And you know what's incredible is in our world, what we tend to do as human beings is we tend to take the regularity of the world, the normalcy of things, all the way down to molecules and all the way out to the farthest reaches of space, and we tend to contort those things and to say, well, because these things are this way, that necessarily means there's not a God. It's this type of process. It's this type of thing here. Do you understand what really is being said here is that God has given all these things that we can understand and study as a testimony of who He is, how profoundly awesome He is, down to the smallest atom in all its intricacies out to the farthest reaches of space. And ultimately, that mercy was shown in the person of Jesus. As we conclude here, I want to read this passage from Isaiah 54, and then I want to make a few final points. Beginning in verse 7, this is what the Lord says, For a brief moment I deserted you, but with great compassion I will gather you. In overflowing anger for a moment I hid my face from you. With everlasting love I will have compassion on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. This is like the days of Noah to me, as I swore that the waters of Noah should no more go over the earth, so I have sworn that I will not be angry with you, and I will not rebuke you. For the mountains may depart and the hills be removed, but my steadfast love shall not depart from you, and my covenant of peace shall not be removed, says the Lord who has compassion on you. O afflicted one, storm-tossed and not comforted, 
Behold, I will set your stones in antinomy and lay your foundations with sapphires. I will make your pinnacles of agate and your gates of carbuncles and all your wall of precious stones. All your children shall be taught by the Lord and great shall be the peace of your children. Do you hear that? In the providence of God, the whole of human history moved forward until at the right time he sent his son. In God's providence, his son was born to a woman. The infinite God was born to a woman. Not even the queen, not even the greatest woman necessarily that ever lived, although I would say that since Mary was given the privilege of having Jesus, she was the greatest woman that ever lived. But do you realize that there was nothing special about Mary? But God at the right time humbled his son in such a way that he came and was born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem sinful people like you and me. We see that man is unable to ultimately fix his most profound problems. We can't. All we can do right now, men and women, and, and just admit this, with all our technology, all we can do is sit there with our technology and look as hurricane after hurricane after hurricane is formed and sweeps across the coast of our country. And we're preparing for more. And what are we going to do about it? Run. Because that's the only smart thing to do. Because we cannot fix these things which are able to do us harm. We cannot fix all the diseases. Every time we come up with a cure for one, one more profound and harder to figure out creeps upon us. We are weak and frail people. We don't have all the answers for the inner city. We don't have all the answers for our rural populations. We don't know how to solve all the problems of world hunger. We don't. We don't know how to fix those problems. We certainly don't know how to stop ourselves from doing evil and committing sin. And so God provided for us Jesus to take away the sin of the world. And finally, what I want you to see is that that was the ultimate in profound mercy because he didn't have to do it. Because we're told in the Scriptures that while we were still enemies, Christ died for us. You see, the great truth of these texts is, is that God's providence, His provision, and His mercy are clearly seen in the person and work of Jesus. And as we place our faith in Him, we have hope, we have confidence, we have a surety that all the other promises that we may not yet have fully experienced are yes and amen in Jesus. If you're here this morning and you do not know Jesus, I would humbly ask that you would seek out a friend who you know does or you would come and talk to me about how you might come to know Jesus. You might experience peace and comfort and satisfaction in this life. And if you do know Him, would you be a person who dispenses that goodness and grace to others around you? Would you not hoard the wealth that God has given you, but would you show mercy because you've been shown mercy? And would you show love because you've been shown love? Would you reach out your hand to other believers and to other people who are in need?
Because that's what God has called us to in this life. And we see that clearly in chapter 8 of the book of Genesis. May God profoundly do His work in our midst. Amen.